Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Of people in this class, and people are catching on to this pretty quickly. My two goals for this was number one, for you to think independent of oral tradition, and the second goal was to show you how to research topics in the book of Revelation without necessarily depending upon a commentary. And I'm seeing I'm seeing both of those goals successful so far. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about the researching. People are thinking independent for themselves. They're not relying on oral tradition that they've been fed all their lives. That's excellent. But as a result, I need to talk about a t- another topic tonight just very quickly. We need to discuss interpreting symbols when you interpret symbols, you're going to have to keep them within the context of Revelation and with the context of the first century. And I realized that possibly I did not make that clear when I talked about this slide in lesson one. Do you all remember this, this slide? In the first lesson, I put this slide up showing what sources were permitted and what sources we were going to pretty much ignore. I mentioned history was one of the sources we're going to be using. When I say history, I'm talking first century history period, okay? I'm not talking about third and fourth century. Now, some of our sources are from the second, third, and fourth century historians, uh, church leaders. But the actual interpretation of symbols needs to be pretty much confined to the first century. And we'll be discussing that more here in a minute. Brother J.B. Johnson and I had a discussion about a week or two ago about textbooks. And he and I have almost come to a compromise, I think. I do not like textbooks. I do not like commentaries because they'll get you into trouble. I have conceded to Brother J.B. that, yes, they can be a good source, as long as that's not your only source and as long as you look many other places for material and sources for your information. The problem I have with textbooks is people have a tendency to stick with one and that's it. When you stick with one textbook and you read that textbook to your class, you're not really teaching, you're, you're, you're just telling the class what one person's opinion is without any research. So, I don't, I don't know, he and I are, are still in discussion. Eventually, he'll, he'll bring me around, maybe. But right now, I really don't like commentaries. We need to discuss the four philosophies of interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to keep these at a very high level. You can look at these online and get more detail. These are the four, type, these are the four philosophies. Preterist, historicist, futurist, and idealist. Now, the preterist say that the study of Revelation is just a first century setting from Nero to Domitian Caesar, which, by the way, is correct. 
But they go, they, they take you a little bit too far. They say Revelation was fulfilled mostly in the first and second century from the fall of Jerusalem to the fall of the Roman Empire. And as such, Revelation has no meaning for us whatsoever today. The historicists say that Revelation is a time scheme in the whole course of history. A time scheme that spans from now into the future. We don't know when that future ends, by the way. The time scheme stretches through all time. As such, we can use Revelation to predict secular historical events from now until the end of time. In theory, that's the way historicists, I can't say that word, view Revelation. In reality, it's not. If you will talk to a premillennialist whenever a disaster occurs, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I took our car, I don't know, a year or so ago to the shop, and a guy there, we started talking about Revelation. He said, you know, Revelation predicted COVID. And I had a lady a couple years ago tell me the same thing. Well, yeah, it's easy to say that once COVID has happened, and you say, oh, look, that looks kind of like what Revelation is saying. So, yeah, Revelation predicted COVID. If Revelation really predicted COVID, they should have told us 20 years ago that it was going to happen. Not after the fact. Futurist is adopted by those who, who believe in premillennialistic eschatology. That's the doctrine of last things. As such, it is popular with those who believe that number one, Armageddon is a literal physical battle. Number two, God will defeat his foes via Armageddon. And number three, Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Sometimes Premillennialists also adopt a few little sprinkles of some of these other philosophies, but basically this futurist is premillennialism. The fourth philosophy is a timeless symbology. Revelation is timelessly symbolic. The symbols and meaning do not change with time. The comfort to Christians is that God will avenge the faithful's blood, the faithful will win the victory, and God will save the faithful from the second death. That is mainly the approach we're going to take in this class. We will have a little bit of the preterist. In fact, it is the first century. But that, that, that's generally the direction we're headed. Now, When you interpret a revelation symbol, and I'm going to give you examples of this here in just a moment. There are some questions you need to ask yourself when you interpret that symbol. First of all, is is the revelation interpretation within the context of revelation? Is the revelation interpretation historically confined to the first century? Is the Revelation interpretation consistent with the Revelation's tribulation definition? And is the Revelation interpretation providing assurance to the first century church? If you cannot answer yes on all four of these, then your interpretation is wrong. My interpretation is wrong. There might be one or two outliers, but generally speaking, this is your outline. You need need to... You need to satisfy each of these. Is, is the interpretation within the context of Revelation? Do you remember this slide? This is the way you actually interpret a verse in Revelation. You can use the same, you can use this same list to interpret a, a, a symbol. 
First of all, you're consistent with the surrounding verses. You're consistent within the chapter. You're consistent within the theme of Revelation. Fourth, you are consistent with the first century history. And fifth, you are consistent with the remainder of the Bible. Remember, we we looked at an example, um, Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. The woman was representing the church, some people say. That's an example of where you're consistent with first century history and you're consistent with the remainder of the Bible, but you fail the top three. You must do it in this order. You must interpret in this order. Is the Revelation interpretation historically confined to the first century? And I'm talking about first century dates. If not, you've got a problem. And the problem is what what you're translating is not applicable to the saints. One example is, I read recently a, um, a commentary that said that the fourth horseman represented a famine that was going to happen in the Roman Empire 300 years into the future. These Christians are being slaughtered right and left. Their children are being taken away from them and made wards of the state, and they are being beheaded What does a famine 300 years in the future do for the first century church? It does nothing for them. The book of Revelation was written specifically to the seven churches of Asia. We've got to interpret these symbols in such a way that it has something to do with the seven churches of Asia in the first century. If we start going off like the premillennialists do and just take off hundreds of years, centuries into the future, that's not doing the first century church any good. And you're going to find out that you're, you're, you're interpreting a symbol wrong or interpreting a verse wrong. Is your symbol interpretation consistent with the Revelation tribulation? You've seen this slide before. I've changed it ever so slightly, though. This is a, a chapter by chapter association with the tribulation as defined in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, 6, 7, and 20 are the characteristics of that tribulation. Chapters 11, 12, and 13 are the history of that tribulation, history of suffering in general. Chapters 8 and 9, God is punishing and judging the villain of the book of Revelation who is guilty of of perpetrating this tribulation. Chapter 10, God has had enough of the villain acting this way Chapters 14 and 15 is heaven's response to God's judging the villain of the book of Revelation for this tribulation. Chapter 16, we have the final judgment on the villain. Chapter 17, we have the villain positively ID'd. We have the villain's accomplices positively ID'd in chapter 18. And then chapter 19, we have the saint's victory over this tribulation. Every chapter is either talking about a characteristic or it is a response to the tribulation as, de- as we defined it in the second, in the second class of this, of this series. Your symbols are going to have to be defined in light of what is taking place in the first century to these, to these Christians. Otherwise, you've got a symbol that nobody can do anything with, including the first century Christians. Um, this is basically a repeat of what I've said.
Is it relevant to them? Is it of interest to them? A famine 300 years from now is not an interest to the first century church. Okay. I'm going to run through these real quickly. It, it's, it's, an, it's just an idea to give you, to give you some, some type of outline in your mind about how you go about figuring out what a commentary, what a commentator in a commentary thinks about the book of Revelation, where he's coming from. Um, just recently I was emailing a lady who's sitting back here. She was, we were talking about a commentary, and one of the things I did was go to some specific verses, specific chapters and specific verses in Revelation to see what this commentator thought about them and how he interpreted them. For example, I will go to Revelation 1.10, see what they think about the Lord's Day. If they say Sunday, then I know I have a commentary who likes oral tradition? If you go to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that's the four horsemen. If they interpret the four horsemen to something out in the future, I know I have a futurist. If the woman in chapter 12 is the church, then I know I have a preterist. If 666, I almost said 666. If 666 does not represent Nero and the Caesars, then I know I have probably a historist. What they'll do, what they'll do is they'll take 666 and apply it to someone that is currently in their, in their generation. For example, 666 has been Peter the Great. It has been Adolf Hitler. It has been Donald Trump, Obama, and Obama, and it has been Ronald Reagan. Every generation seems to have its own beast for some reason. Anyone who does that, they're either a premillennialist or they are a historicist. I can't say that word. There, 16. Okay, chapter 16, that's got Armageddon in it. If Armageddon is some future war that marks the end of the world, then they're going to be historists. They're probably going to be premillennialists as well. Chapter 17, where it talks about the seven kings plus one. If those are listed before or after the mid to late first century, then you've probably got a futurist there. Um, Same with chapter 20, verse 8. What is 20, verse 8? I don't remember right offhand. Oh, Gog and Magog. If Gog and Magog is some war that's going to happen way off in the future and that marks the end of the time, you've probably got a premillennialist on your hand. You definitely have a futurist. So see, you can just go to different, different verses, different key verses that all these different philosophies interpret differently. And you can tell pretty much what your commentary, what your commentator, what, what your commentator's view is on the book of Revelation. Now, does all that make sense? I'm kind of going a little bit fast because i got a lot of stuff to cover tonight. Does that make sense? You've got to keep the symbols, the translations, interpretations of the symbols in the first century. If you don't, they're meaningless to everybody, including us, by the way. Got to keep them in the first century. Okay. Let's see if I can switch slides here. Ah, yeah.
Okay, all right. We have this evening's installment of The Lost Ark. Has anyone found the ark yet? I assume not. I assume not. Tonight is episode number three called The Jeremiah Code. Now first, first off, I need to show you a couple of things. This right here, does everyone know what that is? It's called Warren's Gate. This is a holy site to the Jews. It is found, that, it, that wall with the arch in it, that is actually Temple Mount Wall, almost at the foundation. This is a little synagogue, little place of worship that the Jews have set up. This wall is very sacred to the Jews. It is the wall that's closest to the most holy place and thus the Ark of the Covenant back when the temple existed. It is believed that the Ark has passed through this tunnel more than once. I mean, through this arch more than once. It's named the Warren Tunnel, the Warren Gate because it, uh, it was discovered again in the 19th century by a surveyor named Charles Warren. And in a minute, I'll show you why. Here's, here's why. Here's why he had to discover it again. Okay, in this picture we have the temple. We have the Western Wailing Wall. We have an arch here called Wilson's Arch. And right there is Warren's Gate. Everything north of Wilson's Arch is below ground level now. All this area, let me get my little handy dandy writer. All of this area right here, the street level, is now level with the top of the gate. Here's a picture of it. There's Wilson's Arch right there. Warren's Gate is buried, I don't know, 75 to 100 feet deep there. The only way you can get to it is to go through Wilson's Arch and walk through a tunnel. But you see all this area up in here? It's all built up. It's Jerusalem built on top of Jerusalem, built on top of Jerusalem, built on top of Jerusalem to where that part of the city is actually, street level is actually the top of Temple Mount. A Temple Mount wall. Now, what is so special about Warren's Gate? One of the theories for the Ark of the Covenant is that Jeremiah and his priest and high priest escaped Jerusalem with it. There you see, yeah, you can see Warren's Gate up there. The theory says that Jeremiah and his priest snuck out of the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, went out on the Temple Mount, and went out Warren's Gate. And somewhere around in there, there, there's many cave entries, so they went into one of the cave entries and went down into the Gihon Spring Tunnel. He headed south, and then at the southwestern corner of Temple Mount Wall, the tunnel heads east straight to the Gihon Spring. Now, once he got to Gihon Spring, the story goes that he walked just a few feet and got into Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, if you recall, Brother Collie spoke about Hezekiah's tunnel just a few, a few sermons ago. It zigzags in and out of the city of David. It zigzags in and out 
below the, the, the gate, the wall around the city of David, in fact. Finally, it ends up down in the southern part of the city of David, just barely outside the wall at the Pool of Siloam. Now, this, um, this area right here is actually runoff from the Pool of Siloam. The pool itself is, is right there. Now, once Jeremiah got this far with the ark, it is said that he went out one of the southern gates. And from there... And from there, he took it to Mount Nebo, Mount Nebo, also known as Mount Pisgah, and buried it there. Second Maccabees chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this. It says, These same records also tell us that Jeremiah, acting under divine guidance, commanded the tent of the Lord's presence and the covenant box to follow him to the mountain where Moses had looked down on the land which God had promised our people. When Jeremiah got to the mountain, he found a huge cave, and there he hid the tent of the Lord's presence and the covenant box and the altar of incense. Then he sealed up the entrance. Is that true? I don't know. Is the, second, is, is the book of Maccabees uh, reliable? Yeah, it didn't make the... Yeah, the second Maccabees is, is in the... I believe it is in the Catholic Bible. It did not make the canon, the Bible canon. It's got some history in it. That's second, first and second Maccabees does have some history in it. That's probably reliable. Yeah. The question is, how much of it is reliable? I, I don't know if there's an answer to that. Does anyone else know how reliable is the Book of Maccabees? James Andrews is grinning. What are you grinning for? <laughs> Okay. Please wax eloquently. That's what Second Maccabees chapter two verses four and five claim. Once you're on once you're on Mount Nebo, this is the this is the view. This is a similar view that probably Moses had as well. Now, on top of this mountain, you have a monastery that's built. A gentleman, let's see, I think I would just read this to you. It's too, too much information to memorize. In 1981, a preacher from Kansas named, named, named Tom Kotzer, C-R-O-T-S-E-R, Kotzer, went to Mount Nebo to search for the ark using a treasure map he had acquired from a local archaeologist. The entry of the tunnel, the cave, was down the hill from the church that was on top of the mountain. He walked through the tunnel until he reached a location approximately beneath the church. Using a pickaxe, he broke through a wall and encountered and found a chamber on the other side. In that chamber, he claims to have found a box that he declared to be the ark. He took a photo of it and his team left. He returned to Kansas and gave press conferences, but many doubted the claim. Experts concluded that this is not an ancient chest, but a modern replica of an ark chest. What else could have been hidden in the cave? There's his map. There's, there's where he says that the cave actually opens. And if you follow it, go directly beneath the monastery, you'll find a chamber that has a box in it. 
Here is a picture of that box. There's no cherubim on top for sure. Is that the Ark of the Covenant? Don't know. In fact, we'll never know. This article said that when the, when the Jordanian government heard what this preacher was doing, they were, quote, not amused and, quote, freaked out. Uh, Jordan government freaked out. That's interesting. In 1981, the Jordan government shut down all archaeological digs as a result of this incident. The Jordanian government <laughs> remains, remains suspicious even until today. So strict was that order that the local Jordanians in this area won't even talk about the ark possibly being in this mountain. So it's crickets, it's total silence, and there's no way anyone's ever going to be able to get into this tunnel again, probably, and find out exactly what this box is. Now there is a little bit more to this story. Take this for what it's worth. I don't know if it's worth anything. The further, further story says that eventually Jeremiah and his priest went back to Mount Nebo, went into this tunnel, got the Ark of the Covenant, brought it back, went across the seas, landed somewhere around current day France, went up to Great Britain, and then over to Ireland. And in Ireland, that's supposedly where Jeremiah died, and the, the Ark of the Covenant, as well as as well as the altar of incense and something else. The what? Huh? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Talk louder, I'm deaf. Okay. You're right. The temple, the, the tabernacle of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and the altar of incense are all three supposed to be buried with him in Ireland. There is a book, an old Irish history book called the Book of Invasions, and it tells about a wise Jewish prophet, no name mentioned, arriving in Ireland in the 6th century B.C. with lots of religious relics coming with him. And he's buried there in various theoretical, fabled locations there in Ireland. So... The ark could be buried underneath Jerusalem. It could be in the Vatican. It could be in Rome. It could be underneath Rome. It could be on Mount Nebo, or it could be in Ireland. I read another article that said that, that Jeremiah actually went through Portugal on his way up to Ireland, and they think that maybe the ark was left in Portugal. Take your pick. Pick your poison. It would be interesting to get back into this tunnel, though, and find out what this box is. That looks, that looks, like, that looks like gold. Gold overlay. I, I don't know. That's right. Those rings are missing. Supposed to have rings on the side for the poles to go through. Yeah, there's no rings and there's no, there's no cherubim on top. Yeah, because God's presence was in it. Nowadays, it probably wouldn't have any power at all. I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I can't imagine a reason why it would have any power today. So if this is the ark, you can just go ahead and pick it up if you want to, probably. 
But the Jordanian government is not happy with this preacher. And so they're not going to let anybody in there ever. Okay. We are moving right along here. Okay, Mark Bailey is going to read for us. We are ready for chapter 6. See if that comes up right quick. We have 15 minutes to cover chapter 6. Okay, Mark, will you please read chapter 6 for us? Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand?
Thank you. This is why I do not give the sound booth my slides. This is the fourth file of slides that I've had to access, access tonight. Okay. We're about to hit our first real, real symbol that we, we are going to have to translate and interpret. Before we do that, I would like to make a quick comment about Ezekiel. In fact, I'll let the guy at this website make the comment for us. Some claim that the four horsemen of the apocalypse can be found in the prophetic book of Ezekiel. A search of the book reveals that horses are mentioned 16 times in 12 verses in the book, but never are they described as four horses, nor are they described as being of various colors. This is an important point, as we will discover when we arrive at the book of Revelation. This means it is an error to proclaim the four horsemen of the apocalypse are described in the book of Ezekiel. What is the connection between Ezekiel and Revelation? I don't know. I do not know the book of Ezekiel. I have had one class in, in college, very high level on Ezekiel, nothing detail. I don't know the book of Ezekiel. If some of you know it, maybe you can wax eloquently sometime up here for five or ten minutes and tell us what that connection is. Now, there is some symbology you see in Ezekiel that matches some things you see in Revelation, but I, I, don't, I don't know the connection. I don't know the prophetic connection. I don't, I don't know if they're even talking about the same thing. But anyway, just be, just be aware. Be careful with the book of Ezekiel and Revelation. They may or may not necessarily be associated and related. Okay. We are about to hit our first real symbols. What happened with the first, with the first seal? With the first seal, we say a white horse, that is, and he that sat on it, had a bow, a crown, it was given to him, and when he went forth to conquer, and he went, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Seal number one, determination to conquer. All right? Seal number two was a red horse, and it was given to him to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Seal number two, the killing and the bloodshed begins. Seal number three. He that sat on it had a pair of balances in his hand. This was a black horse. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. You look at a measure or a quart of wheat for a denaria, you're basically looking at a day's wage. We're talking food inflation, everything inflation, but especially food, costing at least a day's wage, if not more. The fourth, the fourth seal, it was a pill horse, and on him was death and Hades. The power was given to him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death, and with beasts of the earth. Now, BibleHub.com does not use the word death. It uses the word plague, as in disease. Okay? That, that becomes important in a few slides. So, what do we have? We have a seal that causes death by the sword, 
by hunger, by disease, and beasts of the earth. So here you have them. By the way, that lady did a good job on her painting. Here you have them. Seal number one, seal number two, seal number three, seal number four. Even if we don't finish with these slides tonight, I would like to stop here and let you think about this for a minute. What does that, what does that sequence look like to you? Hmm? Very good. Excellent. Everybody hear that? He said war. The four stages of war. If you want to defeat an enemy, what do you do? You do these four things. If you can do these four things, even though they're determined to conquer, if you can do these four things, you've won. If you look at the history of the first century church, this parallels what they were going through perfectly. They started out good. They started out, yes, we're going we're to work our way through this. Then the killing and the bloodshed came. The inflation came. Not only... Okay, we're going to run out of time, but that's okay. Not only did inflation come, we're going to find out in chapter 13 that the Roman Empire pulled a stunt with the Christians. They did two things. First of all, they said, if there is a Christian who owns a business... We will not do business with those businesses. And if you do business with those businesses and you own a business, we'll boycott you too. If you do business with one of these Christians, we may arrest you for that. The second thing they, they did was say, okay, you, you are a non-Christian, but you own a grocery store. If you do commerce with one of these Christians and we find out, not only are you going to jail, but we're going to make sure that your entire family and their business is going to be boycotted. If Rome could not get these Christians directly, they got them by proxy. They got them through the Roman citizens. Now, I realize we have not proven yet that the villain of the book of Revelation is Rome. But the book of Revelation is written like a murder novel. It's going to give you clues all the way through it like this until eventually you come to the conclusion, well, yes, that has to be Rome. And then when we get to chapter 17, we'll have positive identification that Rome is indeed the villain. Does everybody see that? Does this meet the criteria that we were talking about a while ago? Are we staying inside the first century? Yes, we are. Is this applicable to the first century church? Yes, it is. This is what's happening to them. You see how that works? I was reading a commentary um, several evenings ago. The commentary said that the fourth seal was prophesying a famine that was going to occur inside the Roman Empire 300 years from the time the book of Revelation was written. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the first century church. It doesn't help us. Who does it help? It helps nobody. Clearly, clearly one or two things is happening. Either, either we've messed up interpreting that or God has messed up the book of Revelation addressing it to the seven churches of Asia because He's put something in there that has nothing to do with them. We've got to remain consistent with the book of Revelation and the time frame that we're talking about. 
when we go about defining these symbols. And the gentleman over here that said war, he gets the gold star for the night. Good job. Let's see how much further we can go. The fifth, the fifth seal, the souls, the slain souls beneath the altar of God. By the way, you remember the, the picture of the altar with all the saints beneath it? Is that paradise? Did that lady just paint a picture of paradise? Is that where paradise is? The sixth seal. I won't, I won't read I'll read all that again. The sixth seal. Evil is going to receive God's wrath. Now, let's get to this real quick. I think we're going to get through these slides. Here is your six seals. Based on what I mentioned before about the layout of the book of Revelation, what does that look like? What does that look like to you? Remember, God is making a case against the villain of the book of Revelation, like he's in court. Not only is this an excellent table of contents for the book of Revelation, but it's something else. What does it look like to you? Uh, yeah, eventually that's what's going to happen. He's going to judge the, the evil, and, and that evil, the, the villain of the book of Revelation, isn't going to be able to do their evil deeds anymore. But what does this in particular look like at this instance in this location of the book of Revelation? You've been reading my notes. <laughs> Very good. You're, you're so close, I'm going to go ahead and say it. This looks like an opening statement in court. He's given, he's given evidence. He's telling what the bad guy did and what he's going to do about it. This is basically an opening statement in court. The book of Revelation, the way it is laid out, is laid out like a court case. God is saying, here's, here's what they're doing. Here's what I try to do to make it stop. Here was their response. Here's my response. And then he goes, when he gets to chapter 16, 13, 16, 17, and 18, he will actually start naming names and telling you who the accomplices are, who the bad guy is. This being in chapter 6 at the beginning, this looks like an opening statement in a court case to me. Does it to you? We're basically looking at the anatomy of a judgment on the part of Jesus and, and God, if you want to say God as well, on not only the villain of the book of Revelation, but on, but on evil in general. Because the principles that we see laid out in the book of Revelation not only apply to this specific instance, but the principles of this judgment apply to all of evil. And if we decide we're going to be evil, we're looking at our judgment right here in this book. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 
1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.